As some of you may know about me, I love board games. And one such game that I actually really appreciate and really uh, love is the game of Clue. Ah, good. Some of you are familiar. Excellent. Now, <clears throat> Clue, for those of you who are not familiar, is this murder mystery game where each player wanders around the mansion trying to figure out um, who committed the murder. Uh, now, you have various pieces of uh, information, evidences, if you will, um, to follow around to eventually try to conclude who the murderer is, where the murder take place, and with what weapon. For example, the classic Colonel Mustard in the library with the candlestick. Hopefully you've... Oh, good, good. You guys are familiar. Excellent. Awesome. Yeah, I like the candlestick. I think that's the, the, the fan favorite there. Anyways, nevertheless, but before you can get to that moment where you can confidently boast that this is the situation, you have to use logic and deduce your findings so that you can discover and win the game. Clue is this classic whodunit game. Now, this morning, we will be doing something similar. The title for the series, as you know, and as it says there, is Walking in the Light. Yet this morning, when we look at our text, we'll discover that not all who claim to be of the light actually are of the light. Hence my message for today, false lights. So 1 John chapter 2, 18 through 27 gives us the clues, the evidence. We need to discover three things. Who are these false lights? What do they teach? And how do they act? So to begin our study, uh, will you please stand for the reading of God's word? And again, John chapter, excuse me, 1 John chapter 2, verses 8. 27. And this is God's word. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us eternal life. I write these things to you because those who are, because those who are trying to deceive you but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as, but ha, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught to you, abide in him. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So today... My main focus, my main goal, or the main point, if you will, is for us to be able to identify these false lights, or as you were following along, I'm sure you can grasp, John calls them the Antichrists. Now, <clears throat> literally, the word Antichrist means against Christ, right? Our, our standard prefix there, anti, means against, and this is someone that opposes Christ. Now, opposition to Christ may be as plain as simply denying him, or it could be contradicting him. Consider some of our most outspoken atheists in recent history, like a Richard Dawkins or a Ricky Gervais. Now, 
it's funny I might be comparing these two because one is this very influential, very uh, brilliant scientific uh, influence uh, in the, the science realm and has written several books. And the other is a stand-up comedian. Yet their messages are the same. They deny Jesus is the Christ in everything they say. And they are clear antichrists for this denial. Or we could go into the realm of religion, and we could look at a person like the Dalai Lama or a Joseph Smith. They wouldn't necessarily deny the Christ. They wouldn't necessarily deny that Jesus is the Christ, but they would certainly contradict the truth of Christ. They too are antichrists. Don't worry, we'll, we'll look more at some of these examples. So Christ can be, or excuse me, an antichrist, <laughs> excuse me. So an antichrist can be someone who's intelligent, popular, and even well-spoken. But also look at what John says in verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. So what is John saying to his first century audience is not only are they necessarily distant from the church, but they could literally be in the church or could have been in the church. These antichrists could possibly be someone that we've sat next to during a worship service. These antichrists could be someone that we've had over to share a meal with. These antichrists could be someone we have even sung songs of adoration with. But they are clearly antichrists. Now, just to clarify here briefly, I'm not saying that anyone who leaves this church or any sort of other local church is by default an antichrist. For example, people leave local churches all the time and they go for various reasons, whether it's not they want to find a, a, a youth group or they have family at this other church or, or friends or whatever the reason, it doesn't change the reality that some people do go on, they still have a very consistent faith and they still clearly love God. And there can even be those that leave the church for a while, deny the faith, perhaps for a season they get caught up in worldly thinking, worldly ideas, but then repent and come back. These kinds of people are not antichrist, so we must be careful when we throw around this term antichrist. However, some people claim to be with us, but as the text says, are not of us. And to Consider this, Jesus has a, as a warning. John records it in, in chapter 10 of his gospel. And so listen to these words that John records of Jesus in John 10, 1 through 5. Truly, truly, I tell to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But... He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. Notice in this text, there is a clear connection. There is a knowing relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. The Antichrist John is talking about are not sheep because they don't know this voice of the shepherd. Antichrists don't believe Christ. They do not have fellowship with Christ. They may know of Christ, but they do not know him through God's gift of saving faith. For when they hear the message of Christ to repent and to trust in Christ alone, they cannot hear the shepherd's voice and Don has already alluded to this passage, but from 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, 
Jesus speaks, but it is only foolishness or folly to those who oppose him, those that are the false lights. So they do not know him. So then what do these that oppose Christ, those that actively oppose Christ, these antichrists, what do they believe? What do they teach? And looking at verses 22 and 23, we get the insight here. So verse 22 and 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Christ, excuse me, that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So right here at the very beginning, the first doing of the Antichrist or the first belief of the Antichrist is that they deny Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one. They teach that Jesus is not the Son of God and that he is not sent by the Father to save or redeem the world. Now, brothers and sisters, I know that you know that that's just not true. God immediately proclaims his promise of a Messiah. This pro- proclamation is the prote. I can't speak today. Egalion, and it is the first declaring of the gospel as recorded in Genesis 3.15. Right at the beginning, right after the fall, we find these words. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, God is actually speaking to the serpent here, and so that's what's going on, and that's what the, the context of that passage is. But this is the first moment of the gospel, and it comes literally on the heels of the fall of mankind. And so we see a promise of a Messiah right there. However, from this promise, or this promise in and of itself, is further revealed as God continued to provide more insight to his people. The ancient prophets of Israel speak of this figure, this Messiah, throughout the history of Israel, uh, this Messiah that would come. And Isaiah is one of these prophets, and he is inspired to write this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there is no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from the time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Now, frankly, we could have spent our next 20 minutes going through all sorts of other passages that continue to talk about these prophecies of this coming Messiah. But within these two passages, this Genesis 3.15 and this Isaiah 9.6, we see God's plan and his proclamation about his anointed Messiah. Now, you and I, we have a privileged reality here because we are looking back through the lens of the cross. We we get to see the fullness of this plan. However, our Old Testament saints hoped for a Messiah. They longed for a Messiah, yet their ideas were not always perfect. Now, we should be thankful that we're able to see this truth with clarity because of the fullness of Scripture being revealed to us, but then also because God has given us ears through redemption to hear this message. And so we should take a moment to be thankful as we continue to look at this. But in Genesis, the Messiah will bruise the serpent's head, a wound which would eventually prove fatal, right? Again, I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to evaluate this, that if someone takes a blow to the head, that's a lot worse than the heel. And that's what 
Genesis is talking about, that this strike will become a fatal wound, but without but not without the the serpent getting a striking blow on the heel, something that would be non-fatal. And so Genesis 3.15 points to Christ's spiritual victory that will lead to his total victory when, as uh, John Owen said, the death of death comes through the death of Jesus Christ. And John Owen's there is paraphrasing or, or loosely quoting what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. See, where Adam failed, the seed of the woman, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the last Adam, will not. Isaiah also saw this kingship of Jesus and captured it in his inspired language about governments and peace and dominion in that passage we looked at. Now, we need to clarify something here because in ancient Israel, there were three offices of one in which someone would be anointed. Those three offices are a prophet, a priest, and a king. You were anointed one of those if you were ever anointed in any of those capacities, only one. An individual never held more than one office. There was never a prophet slash king in ancient Israel or at least when someone tried that, Saul, it didn't go very well. Yet, Isaiah's prophecy states that this Messiah, this anointed one, will hold all three of these offices. That the Messiah will be prophet, priest, and king of all the universe. Now, Christ is this prophet who proclaims his coming kingdom. Is that not what he did as soon as he began his ministry work? He called people to repentance for the time of his kingdom was at hand. But he's also the great high priest who, like Melchizedek, is the priest forever. And then we know that he is the king of all kings. There is no one with greater authority. Christ is God in the flesh, sent from the Father, to redeem fallen humanity. He rules from heaven now and will one day return and rule his kingdom directly in the renewed cosmos. Now, just as a a quick aside here, if you've been at Sunday school, we've literally just gone through all this and it was just this amazing ending because we finally have have come to the completion that that's what's going to happen at the end of time where we will be in glory with Christ, and that's where this renewed cosmos comes in, and it, it's a beautiful picture. Um, it's at the end of Revelation. It's so beautiful. But nevertheless, this is the, the person, and this is the plan right, that we just unpacked about Christ being the Messiah. See, the Antichrists take this plan, and this is what they're trying to deny. They try to deny either some facet of this, Christ being this Messiah, this priest, this king, this prophet, or they throw out the whole thing, or they try to poke holes in various ways. This is the Antichrist's attempt when they deny that Christ is the Messiah. Now, the other idea of the Antichrist that John shares is that they deny the Son and the Father. Right? We see this here in verse 23. No one who denies the Son will have the Father. And whoever confesses... Excuse me, I was on the verse 22. Calls him a liar... But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So at a first glance, we might seem to suggest that John is worried about atheists, those who deny God outright because they're denying the Father and the Son. While a component of that is true, that's not John's full concern here. John is addressing an issue called dualism. Now, dualism comes originally or at one point from Plato, the philosopher, not the molding clay that you played with as a child, right? Um, yeah, Pla- Plato, the ancient Greek philosopher who lived in, in the 400s BC. See, dualism, right? Two, two things, du- dual, dualism. So the two components 
of dualism is that there was this, the spiritual, which is this highest realm of knowledge and understanding, and then there was this flesh that we have, or this skin, this humanity, which is, at the end of the day, ultimately to be completely rejected or just reviled. And so there's this high spiritual, low earthly or row, uh, fleshly idea. And so this idea begins to sort of infiltrate the church during John's day. And dualism is so contradictory to the whole of God's action in human history. Right? What, where did we start with the, with the, um, the first message was in Genesis? Well, what happens before man can fall? God created a physical universe. He created image bearers, human beings. And we are physical creatures. See, dualism cannot grasp the beauty that God would humbly take on flesh. They would see that as appalling, but yet the gospel is literally built upon this reality. That there is a God-man, Christ, who takes on or who, excuse me, took on flesh to redeem us from our fallen state. Without this, we have nothing. We need a Savior who is not just God, but also man. And that is actually what we see in scriptures, not this dualistic idea. While this is what John was dealing with in his day, we too have our own dualistic antichrist to contend with. Remember, I told you I was going to talk about Joseph Smith. Well, here we go. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or as you are probably more familiarly um, heard it called, the Mormon Church, they're dualists. Now, I can say this because they twist the understanding of God altogether. Instead of understanding what Scripture says, this is what they say about God is that they teach that God was once a man, and then he ascended, he left the fleshly world behind, and he ascended to the heavenly or to the spiritual realm. That's dualism, is it not? Right? Flesh to be rejected and ascending to the, the supernatural or to the spirit realm. <clears throat> so that's their physical. They deny, excuse me, they deny the physical, but they lift up the spiritual and this is, the, this is the kicker in, in Mormonism, too. Not only did God do that, but you could do it, too. They will teach. So you can put off your flesh and become a spirit God-like figure as well. Or, remember I mentioned the Dalai Lama? Well, he is the representative of uh, Tibetan Buddhism. But that is just one of the many Eastern religions. But literally, there are these many different uh, variations of Eastern thought and Eastern religion. And essentially their overarching theme, whether it's various forms of Buddhism or um, Hinduism or Taoism even to a degree, is that essentially, again, I'm generalizing here a little bit, but, but for the, the sake of most of these Eastern thought religions is that one must cease the consistent pattern of birth and rebirth and reincarnation and, and trying to figure out slowly and surely so that eventually one day you enter into what they'd either call nirvana or enlightenment, again, depending on which branch of this you're looking at. And so again, look at what that's talking about. they putting off this pattern of rebirth, physical, a low idea, to find enlightenment into the reconnection of the, the spiritual realm or the, the universal spirit the pantheistic notions that they hold to, right? And that is exactly, again, a Gnostic idea. Put off the flesh, achieve into the spiritual. Now, we could also throw in several different New Age spiritualisms because they too basically are this Eastern thought just repackaged and rebranded uh, with new marketing and new ideas, but essentially they're, they're the same. Sort of a funny term, New Age, really not new. But nevertheless, I, we, don't, we don't need time to break into that right now. So, <clears throat> so we see that in our day, we see John had his context, but, but literally church history reveals a constant battle by the church with Antichrist, which is why we 
here at CFF recognize creeds of Christianity. See, they're important because they came up at a time to fight against whatever was going on in their day. I mean, we don't have time for a whole history lesson, but, well, we're spoiled. I mean, just in my own today, for example, this is my wife's Bible, um, because mine that's just like it, I left at school, and so I didn't have it with me over the weekend, and so I needed a Bible to be able to preach from. I didn't want my big, heavy, studied Bible, because that's big and clunky, so I wanted something more sleek and, you know, so I picked up my wife's because she's not here. And, uh, and I borrowed hers. But I think of how spoiled I am that I have so many copies of the Bible at home, I can just pick it up any time. I could have pulled out my phone, I guess. That might have been unprofessional up here. But nevertheless, we have access to the Word of God so readily. But that's not always been the case for our brothers and sisters in Christ, which is why these creeds get developed. Because there's usually some sort of a controversy, right? Like the Nicene Creed formed because there was this problem. And then... They summarize their findings at the Council of Nicaea in the Nicene Creed so that it could be more easily recognized and so we can say them and memorize them much easier than, you know, you and I can Google the Nicene Creed right now and find it in a second, but those in um, 325 didn't have that luxury. So that's why these creeds are so vital, though, because it, t- uh, me, it connects us or it ties us back to history when they were dealing with these various issues. So, regardless of the shape that dualism might take, it's all contrary to a biblical understanding. Christianity is is God showing us how he loved us and sent his eternal son, being of the same essence of God, Father, but to take on human flesh to accomplish the redemption of his fallen creatures. And just in case you don't want to take my word for it, which I wouldn't recommend, look at John's gospel, John 1, 1 through 5, and then we'll jump ahead to verse 14, but I have it all up here. The Word, excuse me, I jumped spot. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him there was nothing made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, the Word is Christ, and He clearly is God, because it says so in the text, but yet distinct from the Father, because He also says that He's with God. So we see this clear individual personhood within the Trinity, but John does not stop there. He continues in verse 14, and the Word, and it's the last line there, uh, and it's the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you see that he became flesh? This is so controversial to the Gnostic or the uh, dualistic idea. So, Jesus, excuse me, God in Jesus Christ is this greatest expression of his love that is possible. See, friends, God has revealed his nature, his power, his holiness, and most importantly, his mercy and his grace in the scriptures, and they point to Jesus Christ. See, God wants us to know him, to see his great purpose in creating and his great love in redeeming us from the folly or the foolishness of our sin. And that's what we've just looked at. Yet, David warns or writes in in the Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, 
there is no God. And it's foolish, likewise, to adopt any belief about him that is contrary to Scriptures. Yet, it's exactly what we have just seen our antichrists or our false lights do. Hence, they are false lights. So if we continue on, verses 22 and 23 then, we see something very clear. Let's go ahead and take another look here. Who is the liar? Look at that. But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So do you see this? They are liars. What do they do? They lie. <clears throat> First, someone could have... Excuse me. Let's look at these, this idea of lying for, for a minute. A couple situations. So the first one, someone could come out and say something very simple to point out. For example, the Son is a created being from the Father. Most of us, I think, would hear that terminology, that the Son is a created being of the Father, and probably have a problem with that, because that's just not the reality we see in Scripture. We could say that's false from Scripture. However, someone can also say that the Son is the offspring of the Father. And that one might cause us to pause a moment, because if we're biblically literate, we read through them, we might run into words like begotten and go, okay, where are they coming from, right? Begotten, found in John 3 or Colossians 1. So we could see that their, their terminology could maybe trip us up. However, this is exactly what someone would say that is trying to deny the Trinity. And this flows into what John then warns in verse 26, in verse 26, he warns this, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Deceive you. Did you see that? Did you catch that? Antichrists are intentionally, intentionally trying to deceive the sheep of God. They want us to abandon truth. They want us to believe their lies because they hate the truth. They're against Christ, right? That's their very definition of who they are. They're against Christ. So they also want to see his sheep lost from the flock of God, which is why I truly appreciate Charles Spurgeon's words here when he says discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It is knowing the difference between right and almost right. Subtle, but important to, to notice. Because the Antichrist will not always blatantly speak clear lies. Right? Like if I were an Antichrist, I could say my suit is purple. That's pretty blatantly, obviously not true. But they could twist it to try to come up, I don't know, I don't, I'm not a colors person, you have to have somebody else. But nevertheless, right, they're going to try to deceive you into thinking your understanding of color is, is wrong. So they will use cunning language to twist the meanings of their definitions so that we are deceived, which is why Spurgeon's words are so powerful. Because again, it's just a subtle nuance, a subtle difference. So brothers and sisters, hear this. These antichrists are looming, and they want to misguide us. They want us confused and wrong. They love the chaos of lies and the hatred that comes with disagreement. So we must be aware of their tactics lest we fall into them. Jesus has a similar warning. Matthew 7 records this. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, 
but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. Jesus further explains these antichrists, these false lights, and that they will try to hide their identity and are actively trying to be deceptive. The picture Jesus paints here with with a wolf dressing in the clothing of a sheep clearly shows antichrists are willingly and trying to blend in. Right? They, they're going to put on the sheep's clothes, they're going to look like a sheep, but then strike. Right? A ravenous wolf right, would then strike when the guard is down. Earlier, right, we, we looked at the Mormons and we looked at New Age spiritualism or the Eastern religions and both of these antichrists, both of these false lights, use deceptive language. Now, I don't know if you've ever actually encountered um, uh, Mormons and, and spoken with them about faith, whether it's the, the young men who, who come door knocking or just in various contexts, whether, you know, if you've ever had a religious conversation with their missionaries or with just a, a person who's a dedicated follower of Mormonism. But you can literally walk away from their conversation sometimes thinking, oh, wow, we don't really think all that differently. That's funny. I could have sworn someone had warned me about Mormonism at one point, but, but they seem to be speaking, speaking the same language as me. They seem to be saying the same stuff. But this is intentional. They use terms that we use. They talk about atonement. They talk about atonement. They talk about grace. They even talk about the Godhead. They believe in the Trinity, or at least what they think is the Trinity. However, all those definitions, whether it's the atonement or grace or the Trinity, they all have a radically different definition than what Scripture actually paints here. It's so different. They twist it. And only if you ask for clarification or if you ask probing questions will you begin to see the deception of this talk. New Age does the same thing, except they don't necessarily talk about atonement and those things, but they will definitely talk about prayer and meditation. And, but like the other Antichrist we've looked at, they don't define those terms as the Bible defines them. I've even heard them speak on resurrection, these New Age teachers or these Eastern uh, gurus talk about resurrection. But yet, they don't mean to be resurrected, to, to be seated in heavenly places with Christ. They again mean to enter into some sort of enlightenment or, or something along those lines, a spiritual sort of nothingness, not a, not a fellowship with Christ for all eternity. Yet, these definitions that they speak clearly need to be examined because they'll speak this language. So once you get a clear definition from these different false lights, you will find that their deception is exactly the rotten fruit that Christ warned about. Their bad fruit is essentially a works-based religious system, something you must do to earn your salvation right? Meditate X number of times or recite these prayers or in Mormonism, it's to, to keep certain rules and to do certain ceremonies in the temple, right? Yet you must do in order to achieve again into the God status, right? Take off the flesh and enter into the God status or the spiritual status. That's the salvation that they're talking about. But again, this is not biblical salvation. We cannot earn our salvation. Our salvation is the blessed gift 
from God. As I've already noted, Christ is our Messiah. Christ is the Savior of mankind. Christ lived the sinless life that I cannot live, that you cannot live. He took our sins. He paid our debt. And as Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace, the gift, right? You have been saved through faith. And just the, the gut punch to all works-based religions, and it is not of your doing. It is the gift of God. That is our message. Amen. So look back at verse 20 in our text of 1 John chapter 2. It says here, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have knowledge. See, you've been anointed by the Holy One, and this is the Holy Spirit. He dwells in the Christian, and we have knowledge, and this is what comes with our salvation. It's the result of the free gift of grace. And then in verse 24, John will continue to say, we abide in this truth, we abide in what we have heard, so we are, we are walking in this, we, we know this, we act on this, we have heard this gospel message, and this message is Christ, which is why we are abiding in Him. And then since we have Christ, we also have the Father. You see how we are restored back to God. Verse 27 then continues, but the anointing that you received comes from him, abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught to you, abide in him. So, if you look at this and you see all this anointing and, and abiding and all this, John is, is having fun with some play on words a little bit. Because remember, the Antichrist deny the anointing of Christ or the Messiahship of Christ. But as he concludes in this passage, he points that we have an anointing because we abide in the anointed one, Jesus Christ. So it's a fun little play on words there that we have an anointing because we trust in the anointed one. And this, again, is this beauty of the gospel because it's the finished work of Christ. And that restores us back to the Father. And then we're given the Holy Spirit, and now the Holy Spirit is our anointing who regenerated us to faith and is how any of all of what I've just explained becomes possible. So church, we must be on guard. Amen. These false lights, these false lights are a real threat to this truth of God. And so therefore, we must know the truth. We must know Scripture. Scripture, right? Titus contains these words, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine, meaning that those that teach are not free to just sort of speak whatever comes to mind or whatever passing idea maybe jumps into our minds. No, rather, we have to be aligned with the word of God, sound doctrine. We must be here. But then also, myself, Pastor Don, Pastor Steve, we hold very seriously to these words found in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. All Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, I'm not preaching my ideas or my philosophies or my opinions. No, no, no. I'm preaching God's word. 
because it's how we have reproof or correction or know how to walk in righteousness, not because I come up with some sort of great scheme or plan or whatever. No, it's because it's God's word. Because it's God's word that anyone will ever have what they need, the equipping to be a fruitful Christian or to walk in the good works that Christ has prepared for us. See, if we're not careful, if we're not careful to to critically examine this word, to critically look at it, to consider it, and to know what it rightly teaches, then we will be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. And that's Ephesians 4.14. See, we can get swept up and whatever becomes popular or made popular by these false lights. Antichrists are everywhere. Their ideas are at our fingertips in podcasts, books, on TV, literally everywhere. So we have to be ready. We have to know the Word of God, and we, we ought to be like the Bereans. Now, if you aren't familiar with the story of the Bereans, Acts 17 records their story. And uh, while Paul was on a, a missionary journey, he goes to Berea, the city, and there he meets a group of Jews who studied day and night everything that Paul had said in light of the Scriptures. They put to task Paul's claims, essentially. They, they put his claims and looked in the Scriptures to confirm uh, his message. And do you know what Scripture says about these Bereans? It says that they're considered noble. They're praised for this. They're given credit for their challenging Paul by the word of God to confirm what they had heard from Paul and not just to take him at face value. And I can speak for myself. I already alluded to it once or mentioned it once. Like, don't just take my word for it. Yeah, I have your attention. Yes, I'm preaching, but look through scripture. Challenge me if I'm wrong. And I can almost guarantee, I think I can guarantee my fellow pastors here would agree with me. No, they would, for sure. So, you see, we must be like these Bereans that we just looked at, or just reflected on, studying Scripture to make sure we have the truth, which again is why so often every week you will hear from the pulpit, either at announcements or even from preaching like this, and encourage you to come to Sunday school, encourage you to come to home fellowship groups, encourage you to be part of a discipleship program. Why? Because we want to make your lives busy and just fill your time with religious nonsense? No. No, we want you to hear the word. We want you to study the word, and we want to make sure you're getting it right. So that is why we encourage these things. So let's go back to Clue. It's a game. And it's a game I love because, again, I get to examine what I know and deduce a conclusion based on the evidence that I have. So let us take this metaphor then and apply it to faith. The game of Clue tells us that there is a murderer, and we must figure out who he is. Remember Colonel Mustard in the library with the candlestick? Okay. Scripture tells us that there are false lights, antichrists, false prophets. So we must be on guard against their deception. We must be able to recognize them, their teaching and their deception. In Clue, if I'm wrong about Colonel Mustard, then I lose the game. Not a big deal. However, if I'm wrong about antichrists, I'm wrong about these false lights, 
then I have been deceived. So don't think that just because I'm using this game as a metaphor, that this is not a serious issue. Hopefully I've painted a picture that you see how vital of a matter of faith this is that we understand who these false lights are. See, we know the truth because of God's work in our lives. And we care about the truth because, well, it's wonderful. It's counterintuitive to our sinfulness, and yet it's beautiful. He has redeemed us so that we can know Him. And we want to be in fellowship to our call to tell others of this glorious truth. We have fellowship with God, peace through the shed blood of Christ. And I want others to have this fellowship and this peace as well. See, we're his sheep. We know his voice. And Jesus says, has other sheep too. And it's our privilege to work for our shepherd so that we can press on and abide in our precious Lord and then also communicate and hopefully call the other sheep to his fold. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this truth. Thank you, Lord, that you have opened our eyes, that you have opened our ears to hear your voice, Lord, that we may know you. And Lord, I pray that you will give us wisdom and understanding on how to look out for these false lights, these antichrists that come and are like wolves dressed in sheep's clothing, waiting to pounce at the opportune moment. So Lord, give us wisdom on how to see their lies coming and how to uh, combat this because, Lord, we want to rest in your truth, not in the schemes of man, but in the truth, Lord, that you have revealed to us in Scripture. So help us and guide us each day, we pray. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.